Good afternoon from Singapore to everyone who is tuning in from various locations and welcome to a virtual roundtable hosted by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Clemens Che and I'm a research fellow at MEI and equally your moderator for today's discussion. I'm joined by two esteemed colleagues from the Gulf, His Excellency Mr. Nasser al-Sheikh and Dr. Omar al-Bailey. A warm welcome to both of you. I will introduce their profiles shortly, but please allow me to say a few words about the issues that we seek to tackle and address today. The undying and indeed perennial question of economic diversification continues to draw attention to the Gulf states, especially in light of the high oil prices and geopolitically what we can term a cooling regional climate, especially in intra-Gulf ties. But we are also seeing competition and whether healthy or not, that is something we'll be asking our speakers. Saudi Arabia, for instance, comes with an ambition to become the region's central destination for foreign investment and economic activity, pushing for firms to set up regional headquarters in the kingdom and also announcing a target of foreign direct investment, FDI, of at least 100 billion annually by 2030. And on the other hand, we have the UAE's landmark project of the 50 initiative announced last year, marking the nation's 50th birthday or national day really last year, which also aims to attract over $150 billion FDI in the next 10 years. More recently, in fact, the government of Dubai announced that the Emirate retained its top rank worldwide for attracting FDI into tourism. So there's a question of asking whether such competition is healthy, while the other Gulf states seek to distinguish themselves via various projects, whether in hydrogen, or in renewables. Equally important is to look at domestic constituencies with the easing of COVID restrictions, the opening of borders, and the question of taxes. So there are a number of intertwined themes that we will tackle under the banner of economic diversification and competition. So please allow me now to introduce our two speakers. First off, please let me welcome His Excellency Mr. Nasser al-Sheikh, a thought leader and a member of the UAE's development force over the last two decades. He currently chairs Emirate National Holdings and Al Sheikh Investments, and he previously held top public positions such as the Director General at the Department of Finance under the Government of Dubai, as a member also of the Executive Council entrusted with steering Dubai's strategic plan, and as a member of the Supreme Fiscal Committee. He has also held various leadership roles on boards related to real estate, education, retail and corporate banking, among others. So welcome on board, Mr. Al Sheikh. Our second speaker is Dr. Omar Aubedi, the Director of Research at Dirasat Bahrain. He's, a, he's also an affiliated Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University and holds affiliated fellowships with the Mercator Center, King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals, the Arab Gulf State Institute in Washington, and Trend Advisory Group in the UAE. As an accomplished economist, Dr. Aubedi has produced and publish many articles in both academic and media outlets. So warm welcome to you, Omar. You Let me much. explain the sequence of our discussion. And that will be, we'll start with uh, Dr. Ubaidli first, followed by Mr. Al-Sheikh. Uh, They'll give their opening remarks in about eight to 10 minutes each, after which we will have the Q&A session and you are free, the audience, you are free to put in your questions in the chat Zoom chat box. So let us now begin our discussion by setting the stage with Dr. Omar Aubeli. In your opening remarks, Omar, could you give us a broad assessment of the current situation in the Gulf 
not only with the high oil prices, but also the implementation of VAT taxes. How have these worked out? How competitive are the Gulf economies and how well have they done in terms of COVID resilience and the opening of borders? And going back to our event title for today, is the UAE leading the pack while the rest are playing catch up? Over to you, Omar. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Clems, for the invitation. <clears throat> for MAI for the invitation to put, to contribute in today's event. Um, <clears throat> so I'll I'll be brief. Uh, first of all, uh, regarding oil prices uh, and their effect on economic policies, in the past, what we've seen when oil prices have been a lot high, as in, for example, the period 2000 until 2014, or especially until 2011. Uh, what we've seen in the past is that the knee-jerk reaction of uh, GCC countries is to use that in a consumptive way by raising public sector salaries, by going on public sector hiring binges, uh, and even when they make investments, making sort of uh, investments that don't fall into a, a, a strategic, uh, a well-articulated a well strategic vision. But on this occasion, we're seeing <clears throat> much more prudent use of the, of the elevated revenues. And this is for two reasons. <clears throat> One is that there's a realization that this is uh, likely to be a transient. So we still don't know. Uh, I think it's safe to say that everybody here is somewhat surprised by how high oil prices are at the moment. And they could be high again in the future, who knows? But I think there's a realization that this is something that it might not happen again. And so it's not, a, it's not wise to uh, create spending patterns that, are, uh, 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 that depend upon uh, the sustenance of such high prices. And also, more importantly, because the, uh, after 2014, uh, the political barriers to effecting economic transitions and, and attempts at diversifying have been overcome to a significant degree. Uh, and so uh, the entrenched interests, uh, which have previously prevented sort of diversifies, uh, genuine diversification have been overcome to a significant extent. And so now the funds get allocated uh, uh, in a much more uh, sensible manner. <coughs> In tandem with the rising oil prices, as Clemens mentioned, we have uh, uh, we've seen VAT implemented in Saudi Arabia and UAE in 2018, I believe, at the start, and then Bahrain 2019, uh, and Oman uh, at the beginning of 2022. Kuwait and Qatar at present do not have plans to implement VAT. Uh, Kuwait was potentially thinking about it, but I think with oil prices the way they are now, they've been able to shelve that. Uh, VAT has many virtues at, the, at a purely technical level. Uh, you know, if you if you have a, if you look down the menu of ta taxes, then for technical logistical reasons, it's quite it's quite attractive. I won't go through the details; they're quite somewhat tiresome. But uh, there is a reason why it's one of the most popular taxes in the world, and for that reason, it, it has been one of the more popular. It has been you know one of the early taxes adopted by the GCC. But also uh, at the political level, it's much less sensitive than the concept of an income tax. Uh, we've seen corporation tax uh, 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 either adopted or, or scheduled to be adopted in the UAE and other countries in the region. Uh, and I think to some extent that reflects uh, 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 exploiting the global efforts at raising corporate taxes. Uh, I'm sure you also, I think around six months ago, Janet Yellen and other leading uh, finance ministers across the world announcing a big deal uh, to try to uh, harmonize uh, corporation taxes to try to prevent uh, big corporations from evading taxes uh, through legal and illegal means. And so the GCC countries uh, uh, have seized upon that impetus, being parties to that agreement, 
to introduce corporation tax without uh, such a fear that this will lead to capital flight because other countries are having to play ball too. Um, Amman, uh, going back to the issue of common income tax, is was scheduled to do income tax in the middle of 2022. Then it delayed, and I think now it's going to be bringing it back. And I'm sure all the GCC countries will be following that experiment closely because uh, it is something that will probably eventually have to implement. VAT is not sufficient. Uh, and they will be looking to see what the political backlash is, if there is any, uh, regarding the implementation of income tax. Uh, and uh, in terms of uh, uh, attracting talent, you know, the UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular have been very aggressive in, in introducing reforms, uh, attempt, attempt, attempt to attract talent from across the world. Uh, these most salient elements of that have been, first of all, introducing in a sort of more institutionalized forms of permanent residency and naturalization. Uh, and naturalization in particular in, in, in a much more uh, uh, open and, uh, uh, and uh, advanced way than in the past. Uh, UAE in particular, but also Saudi Arabia have been making life also more comfortable for global citizens. Uh, so that means things as simple as uh, allowing films, uh, Hollywood films to be shown without uh, uh, love scenes being cut out uh, or something more complicated like allowing uh, unwed couples to live together uh, uh, to cohabit uh, uh, and uh, and uh, allowing uh, 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 more more social freedoms that were previously uh, uh, you know not uh, not permitted. Uh, in addition, uh, as Clem has mentioned, the issue of COVID, the UAE in particular has been uh, leveraging its uh, sound management of the COVID crisis as a way of uh, of, of attracting global talent. It's a, it was already a very nice place to live, <clears throat> but I think the gap between the UAE and competing countries, especially in the West, has widened significantly during the COVID because UAE has done well and so many Western countries have made such a complete hash of, uh, of dealing with COVID. And I'm talking about countries which normally attract migrants in huge quantities, most saliently the, UA, the US. You know, the US is still uh, has a somewhat schizophrenic relationship with, you know, with, with COVID. Uh, and that makes, you know, makes life very uh, uncertain and irritating for, uh, for the rich. Uh, and uh, the UAE says, you know, you don't have to worry about that, come and live with us. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's bearing fruit. Um, to, uh, to round things off in terms of, you know, my overall assessment, I think most of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, changes and reforms are generally well-founded and heading in the right direction. But I want to draw attention to a basic weakness that all, all these policies have, which is a, a, a lack of dialogue with what I would call the homegrown scientific community. Uh, the, 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 there's just a total disconnect or near total disconnect between academics and scholars on the one hand, working and living in these countries, especially the ones who are citizens of these countries, and the policies that get made. And this is most easily seen if you contrast it with, with a policy done in the US. So when the policy is done in the US, prior to the policy being done, it's something which obviously has frequently been proposed in many scientific papers in the academic community, has been proposed in many think tanks uh, and, and discussed openly. And then immediately after its implementation, uh, I should say during the implementation stage, there are extensive consultations with academics and scientists sometimes in an ad hoc way and sometimes in a, a formally through committees and, and, and councils, such as the Council of Economic Advisors in the US. And then after the implementation, it unleashes a huge torrent of scientific literature analyzing the impact, which is then, you know, feeds back into the policy uh, uh, 
framework in terms of refinements that are made by policymakers. It's discussed in congressional hearings, discussed uh, uh, in, 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 min in, in top ministries, in, in, at every level. Uh, uh, these are not just sort of uh, uh, academics speaking to themselves. This is a, an essential part of the policy uh, uh, process of forging policy. In contrast, in the GCC, papers just don't get written at all. Uh, and even if they do get written, they're often written by foreigners, very frequently foreigners who are not even based in the region. And that's not the fault. I'm not criticizing those foreigners. If, I, you know, if I'm an academic in, in Harvard University's Middle Eastern Studies Department and I want to analyze a policy power to me, it's uh, the fact that the scholars, that my counterparts in the GCC are not writing uh, papers on the issue, it's, it's their fault. It's not my fault that I'm writing the papers. Uh, 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 and there's several reasons for this. The proximate, you know, cause is that is a fundamental lack of data. If you go to the website of any, you know, ministry uh, uh, in, in the GCC, uh, uh, the data is anywhere between, you know, uh, uh, weak to laughably absent. Uh, um, uh, but that proximate cause is actually reflects two deeper causes. One is, I think, uh, uh, I can say is there's a a lack of belief among policymakers in the value of such research. I think that many policymakers, despite what they might say openly, uh, just don't really believe that this kind of research is something that is useful for policymaking. Uh, certainly, they don't buy in in the same way that you know policymakers in Singapore or in in, in US or UK might buy into the value of such research. And also, uh, I think it's partially due to a fear of, you know, uh, 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 criticisms and self-censorship. You know, scholars are hasty, uh, 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 sorry, I should say, are, are anxious about the possibility of writing a policy. Let's say, you know, that a, 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 a VAT has been you know, introduced in several GCC countries. Uh, uh, I think that uh, a scholar, uh, a tax expert in the GCC, looking to analyze VAT retrospectively, would be much more fearful of doing that than the, than a scholar doing the same in the UK or France or Germany, because they would be worried that if they wrote something that was critical, uh, this might have uh, uh, this might not be well looked upon, uh, and this may have professional consequences. Uh, and so, as a consequence of all of these factors together, you have this continuing disconnect. Uh, and and when you have this disconnect, sometimes you have good policies. Uh, but sometimes you have bad policies, and, and even when you do have good policies or bad policies, the rate at which they're rectified and repaired is much slower. And just to round off, Clemens, I know uh, uh, perhaps I've gone a little bit over, but just to give you an illustration of this, um, a very nice illustration in the UK. Uh, so UK's uh, uh, pandemics expert is a guy called Neil Ferguson. Uh, and during the uh, uh, pandemic, you know, he was the one advising the uh, UK government, on, and, and, and he was leading their modelling. The mathematical modeling of the of the pandemic, and uh, because the UK has a very transparent uh, uh, process for the you know relatively speaking for for, for these policies, uh, at some point he had to publish his models and make them available online and his data, and people discovered he had coding errors in his uh, uh, in his uh, uh, model, and this was leading to mistakes in the policies, and then this was these policies were fixed. I should say. Having coding errors, even if you're, you know, one of the top 10 people in the world in infectious diseases is totally normal. Nobody, no matter how intelligent you are, people make coding errors, people are humans, and these mistakes happen. But the only reason this mistake was found is because of the commitment to transparency, the commitment to data openness. And there was no shame. You know, people found a mistake. Okay, he got a rap on the uh, knuckles. I'm sure he was embarrassed, but, by, but he's still considered a top expert and, 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 and the error was fixed. Uh, uh, the same thing doesn't happen in the ECC because nobody ever sees the models because the governments don't believe in the value of making such uh, models to openly available. 
Uh, they don't think that making uh, giving scholars access to such data is something which leads to a higher quality of uh, uh, of research and policy making. And so, if such a mistake were to be made in the GCC, and it probably was, you know, in terms of by likelihood, there are humans in the GCC just like there are humans in the UK and the US. Uh, then the rate, the time it would take to fix the error would be considerably longer. And the same thing applies to all the things I've described, whether it's VAT, naturalization, uh, uh, any sort of economic policies, the rate at which we can advance and refine these policies is, is considerably slower because of this lack of uh, in dialogue between the research community and policymakers. Thank you. Thank you, Omar. I think you provided us with not only a broad assessment, but also many thought-provoking questions that we will tackle again, which will resurface during the QA, I'm sure. But we shall now proceed to Mr. Nasser al-Sheikh for his remarks. And of course, uh, Nasser, you are able to respond to Omar's earlier comments. And also given your experience, what are the steps taken by the UAE to remain at the forefront of attracting business and being heavily involved in Dubai's administration previously? How does Dubai itself distinguished from the rest of the Federation in terms of its role. We also like to hear your views on energy. And, and of course, this can be taken further during the Q&A. Uh, my, my question about energy you know, goes back to the MENA Climate Week in Dubai previously in March. And, and Dr. Sultan Al-Jabr, the UAE Minister of Industry and Advanced Technology, stated, and I quote, the key lesson is that we should not adopt climate policies that lead to energy poverty we need to keep investing low cost low carbon energy that can be provided that can provide the base load of power that the world relies on today so we would like to hear your views on on low cost low carbon energy and we've also just seen the latest news that dubai has announced uh, you know uh, the reduction of fuel prices and what's your take on this and its association also among other policies with the new leadership under President Mohammed bin Zayed, who has also rolled out financial support packages and other social policies. So over to you, Nasser. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm privileged to be to be with you, with the you know, with the distinguished moderator, distinguished speaker, and distinguished participants. I mean, and I thank them for taking the time to listen to us. Um, now, if if we're if we're talking about the UAE's positioning today and uh, you know the future, I think it's very it's very important to understand a bit of history just to put things into context. So, in 1971, you know we have seven Emirates deciding that it's better to unite. Um, so the result was you know a country called the United Arab Emirates, and that was 50 years ago. Um, it had a population of less than 300,000 people. It had only 277,000 people. It had a GDP of 6 billion dirhams, which is less than $2 billion. Okay. Um, and it was uh, way, way behind more established countries like Bahrain, Kuwait, um, and, and so on. So I think, you know, you take it 30 years, you know, fast forward 30 years up to 2001. Uh, in 2001, the GDP of the UAE crossed $100 billion. 
okay and that's you know uh, that's the 30 year journey and it had a population of around 3.3 million people but then you take it again fast forward 20 years the gdp crossed 400 billion dollars and we had the pop you know we had the population of approximately 10 million people so it's you know when i when i when i look at that timeline um in the first you know I, I would i would say in the first three decades you know the the uae was focused on building itself was was focused on on building its infrastructure building it, its government capacity uh, laying the foundation for its uh, business community as you know economic sector and so on so i mean everything was being built from scratch but i think from 2001 you know, this is where we saw the UAE on steroids, where it it grew by $300 billion in GDP, and the population grew by, you know, approximately 7 million people. And, and that's quite important because, I mean, when we look at, you know, what, what do we have as a UAE, what do we have in, 2000, uh, in 2021? Because, I mean, if, if we're saying UAE is leading the pack, you know, currently in the GCC, um you know we need we need to support that with facts so if i look at sovereign wealth for example um you know and i think bloomberg just reported it a few days ago where uh gcc sovereign wealth funds were um, you know were valued at approximately uh, they had uh, around three trillion dollars around 50 percent of that was in the uae so um, you know the today we have we have a country that has you know sovereign wealth funds uh, were you know uh, which has you know uh, assets under management of over 1.5 uh, trillion dollars. Okay, so 90% of that goes to Abu Dhabi. 10% of that is uh, the Dubai sovereign wealth fund ICD. Um, so I mean, all of that is important to understand because. When we look at you know the um, what you mentioned uh, you know the um, uh, the projects of you know the uh, let's say uh, what, what I don't remember the exact name but but uh, the uh, goals that were announced you know towards last uh, last year end of last year and it drew a picture of you know where we do where we do where we see the uae in about you know another 50 years okay and there were you know in a number of headlines but what my what what, what caught my attention was uh, the goal of doubling the economy within 10 years so again if i try to simplify it you know whatever was achieved in the past 50 years you know the goal now is to achieve the same in about 10 years you know grow the gdp by 400 billion dollars and that's and that's very important to understand you know the impact such a you know such a thing has on everything you know be it in population be it on government spending uh, on opportunities for the private sector uh, on okay, I mean the UAE was leading, you know, uh, you know, up to this year the UAE has been the leading 
attractor of, of FDI in the region. So it's not only the GCC, the whole Middle East. Uh, but the ambitions are, you know, greater and bigger. And without understanding the history, I mean, you, 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 you can say, okay, these are just dreams, you know, but there was something achieved in the past 50 years. I think one, one, of, the, one of the most important things that throughout the 50, past 50 years, we also had, I think the country had a lot of learnings from regional successes like Bahrain, uh, at one point in time, like Kuwait, Beirut, but even if we take it into um, just widen the circle a bit, uh, again, you know, the uh, there were very important learnings from Singapore, from Hong Kong, and so on. And we like such examples because they're similar to us in size, you know. Um, so again, I mean. All of these learnings, you know, were taken in, absorbed, and we came with our own version of, uh, let's say, economic development slash prosperity. Okay, and I think I think there were there were a number of sectors uh, that, if I told you, maybe 23, 30 years ago, you know, we'll have tourists coming to the GCC, you know, you would have labeled me as a fool. However. Um, you know, just pre-COVID, the UAE managed to attract over 20 million visitors. 75% of those were in Dubai. And Dubai was the fourth, as per the MasterCard index, Dubai was the fourth most visited city on earth. You know, uh, Dubai's airport was, uh, and still is, the number one airport in the world when you look at international traffic. So, I mean, there are certain successes, but if, if there is one important learning, from looking at the past, I think, you know, it's evident that if you could, if you do not keep on going, you can lose your leadership position easily, you know. And today, when, when I look at the region, you know, the GCC, um, of course, I mean, we have big aspirations, you know, coming up in Saudi, um, uh, big aspirations, of course, I mean, in Qatar, and I think, you know, uh, it's only justified for, for us to see aspirations coming up in Oman, in Bahrain, in Kuwait, and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I, see, I, I see so much, let's say, negative coverage coming from that, you know. And in all honesty, again, you know, um, history is, is, is a very good teacher. So when we look at Europe, or even if we look at the Far East, you know, uh, what the ASEAN countries have managed to do. If there is one learning is that, you know, prosperity is contagious, you know, and if you have a block prospering together, you know, uh, you individually can prosper more, okay? So, I mean, uh, yes, you know, co competition um, will push each one to his limits, will get the best out of everyone, but I, th I, th I think it's it's good for the block, okay? Uh, I, I don't think the UAE can be everything to every country in the region. I, and even the same applies to Saudi, Bahrain, any any country. But but as 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 we see these aspirations coming and as as we see see them being uh, executed, I think we will you know just looking at Europe, looking at at the Far East, we will see countries you know. Uh, excelling in certain areas, you know, and and so I mean, you know, competition. I see it as as 
as a positive thing. Um, so I mean, what I, when I come when I come back to the uh, again the uh, in, initiatives that were that were uh, announced late last year, uh, it's not only of course I mean there was a big emphasis on the economy, um, but the the you know if I say if I say we have managed to build the hardware over the past fifty years, I think the next fifty years is more focused on the software. Okay, so we do we do have you know uh, world class infrastructure when it comes you know to hard infrastructure, the uh, people, talent, the companies that we have managed to attract and so on. But now it's more more about software. It's so I mean when when I look at you know uh, some of the goals um, like announced in Dubai, um, you know to become you know the most uh, you know. Livable country uh, city in 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 uh, in the world. Of course, I mean that that's a big goal, you know. But at least, you know, there is an emphasis on living, uh, let's say, standards. I, I remember I remember two thousand one when we looked at Dubai and tried to identify what's missing in Dubai to attract, you know, international talent. And there were there were a few a few sectors where where, where we need where we needed to focus on healthcare was you know was was a sector that we needed to improve. Uh, education was uh, was a sector that we needed to improve. So introduction of you know world class healthcare provider, world class education you know providers. So I, I think you know uh, you know going forward we will see more more of these soft touches. You know, um, and I don't think I don't think the UAE intends. I don't think the UAE intends to let go of its of its leadership position. It's doubling down. Um, when I look at, yeah, I mean, that, and that's that's about you know the let's say the economic standing of of, of the UAE. Um, when I look at you know the other uh, social changes, if you like, of course, I mean you you mentioned you know the you know the president Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, and and he's he's not new to the role. You know, um, unfortunately, the uh, you know uh, uh, the late Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed, had, had, you know, was was sick for a number of years. So Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed was assuming that role already. Okay, um, and yani, we're there is there is no learning, you know, for him. You know, it's it's just. A matter of you know, just like if I compare it with a company, you know, you have an acting CEO and you just took out the acting, and and this is the CEO. You know? So I mean, he's he's not new to the role. Um, there there was this emphasis on on the local population. You know, um, of course, I mean, you know, I've been I've been talking about the positives, but we have negatives too. So we 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 live in we live in a country where you know only ten percent of the population is is uh, you know local population. However, we do have we do have an issue with an unemployment, for example. You know, it's still single digits, lower single digits. But when you're providing you know millions of <laughs> of um, of let's say um, job opportunities for you know many nationalities, you know the. Um, um, I think it's an issue when you when you have you know uh, local uh, unemployment. 
and there and there were you know big plans there there were big plans there from from the government to subsidize the uh, even you know to subsidize the uh, salaries of the uh, local workforce uh, in the private sector so making the private sector play you know uh, play its role in, in in addressing this issue um of course i mean um, there were huge changes uh, in companies law for example foreign ownership was was opened 100% you know um there were there were uh, changes in uh, many social laws you know uh, uh, unmarried people you know living together because that that was a practice and and whether we want to acknowledge it or not that is a practice in all GCC countries, but the, the only thing that we did, we, we put it on paper as a law, you know, so that is not unlawful. Um, so I think, you know, uh, going forward, we'll still see, see more changes because uh, one of the great advantages of the UAE is 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 it's it's not big in size, okay? Decision Decision making is quite quick. So if, if there are flaws in anything, um, any you know piece of legislation, it can be revised quickly. Um, you know, Doctor Dr. Omar mentioned you know <laughs> um, the um, involvement of the let's say the scientific um, let's say um, yeah the, the scientific. Um, um, as doctors or research centers and or so on in policy making and so on but but if i see it from a, another angle um that makes decision making you know pretty fast um of course there is that risk of um yani, uh, getting things wrong but it can be rectified quickly you know and and that and that was evident in the way that we dealt with COVID. You know, I think the GCC and I won't say I won't single the UAE out, but I think the GCC dealt with COVID well. You know, because we did not. Uh, you know, these are absolute monarchies. Decisions are made; they are followed. Okay, and if it doesn't if it doesn't work, another you know it can be revised. So I mean, we were flexible enough for the decisions you know to be revised in light of uh, a new finding new data whatever so i mean i think i think going going forward we, we will see more improvement um and i don't i don't i, I think maybe I, I took more than my time so i'll just leave it there maybe and we'll address more things in the, in the q a session thank you nasser and uh i think nasser he addressed the uh, the question of transparency that Omar brought up earlier, which I wanted to ask again, but now this he has responded to it. And so we'll just leave it as that for now. We do have questions coming in uh, from the floor, uh, but I have questions of my own, um, which I will kickstart the discussion and then incorporate uh, our questions from our friends in the audience. So to, to Omar, really, um, I think you've written a lot of uh, op-ed pieces about the public sector. And, and of course, you know, there's been many writings about a saturated public sector and how attractive it is and sort of, you know, an iron rice bowl, as we call it here. So 
are there efforts being done to change that kind of perception? And, and if so, what are they? That's that's my question to, to Omar. And and uh, to Nasser, uh, you talked a bit about continuity in terms of the UAE leadership uh, from His Highness the President Mohammed bin Zayed at the minute. And I wanted to ask about the coordination with, for example, the rest of the Emirates in the Federation. For example, the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed bin, bin Rashid, you know, what has been the trend of coordination? And you talked about decision-making as well. So I wanted to, to ask you about this coordination that, that enables these economic policies to be rolled out quickly and decisively. Maybe let's start with, with Omar first. Thank you. Uh, so regarding, so just to give some context, uh, um, the, you know, uh, the public sectors of the Gulf countries are relatively young, certainly compared to you know, European countries. Uh, and so um, one key difference is that uh, since their inception, the public sectors of the Gulf countries have not been purely conceived of as tools of public administration. Uh, public sector jobs have, since their inception in the GCC, been used as a way of increasing the living standards and, and, and creating jobs for citizens. So uh, as a consequence, you have this, you've had some highly bloated uh, and overstaffed public sectors for 50 years. Uh, uh, and uh, because they serve this dual purpose of creating jobs and you know, giving people income uh, uh, to, to feed their families and so on and so forth. Uh, and what this results in is, you know, really low productivity levels in, 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 in the GCC public sectors. I mean, the UAE is somewhere that's relatively good compared to the other GCC countries. Uh, you know, Bahrain is probably somewhere in between. Kuwait would probably be something more towards the less productive uh, uh, part of the spectrum. But none of them uh, has a public sector uh, where I think the amount they spend can be the, producti the productivity can be considered at the level they aspire to. Um, and this can, there could be all sorts of red tape and poor decision-making errors as a consequence of these sort of bloated structures. Now what's happened in COVID and also since oil prices in, decreased in 2014 is there's been an impetus to rationalize. For the first time, there's been a strong desire to try to restructure these public sectors in a manner that can lead to more effective decision-making and they can eliminate some of the you know, barriers that have historically existed. And you're also seeing that happen quite aggressively in Saudi Arabia now under Vision 2030. Um, and you know, one of the uh, uh, big advantages of COVID in particular, uh, when you're dealing with an overstaffed uh, uh, you know, and bloated public sector, is that uh, you know, so usually uh, in public sectors, it's very hard to measure productivity. That's true whether you're in Singapore, Russia, Brazil, USA, whatever. And so it can be very hard to promote people who are good and to get rid of people who are bad at their job. Uh, but in COVID, in a crisis like COVID, it can be very clear, makes very clear who's doing their job properly, who's up to the task, who's not up to the task. Uh, and so this gives the people at the top who make the decisions, the data they need to clean house and get rid of some of the people who've been you know, blocking the public sector for decades, some of these legacy hires that you just, you don't normally have an excuse to get rid of, but now you have an excuse to get rid of them. Uh, and, you know, in Bahrain, we recently, two weeks, about a month ago, we had a cabinet reshuffle and there's the biggest cabinet reshuffle in the history of Bahrain. And there were many, many new and young faces. And many of those were people who performed well during COVID. Uh, the UAE has a, a very young, cabinet uh, uh, by local and international standards. And 
Again, many of those people are people who've demonstrated their competence, their aptitude during the last five years, which have been periods of great stress for the UAE and other countries. So in that, so that sense, you know, people will talk about crisis producing opportunities. One of the opportunities that a crisis affords public sector decision makers is that it helps you diagnose who's a weak administrator and who's a competent uh, uh, administrator. And, and so uh, that's one of the great positives. And I think the UAE is very uh, aggressive now in terms of, I mean, UAE has always had uh, a culture, a, a better culture of accountability in its public sector than the other Gulf countries. But even if you have a high counter of account, culture of accountability, at the end of the day, if you're not in a crisis, it's still difficult to, to, to distinguish the good and the bad. But in a crisis, it's very clear. So I'd say that's one of the big benefits we've seen. Thanks, Omar. Uh, over to you, Nasser, to my question earlier. I apologize, I forgot the question. <laughs> yes, my question was on the, the coordination of, of the UAE leadership between the different rulers of, of the Emirates and the Federation. And in particular, I singled out, for example, the ruler of Dubai with the president, for example, in rolling out the economic policies swiftly and, and decisively. Yeah. I think you're muted uh, again. Okay, what, right. what Dr. Omar has been saying is mean, so interesting that, that it made me, you know, uh, forget the question. But <laughs> thank you for reminding me. Um, I think, you know, when it comes, um, again, I mean, when, when it comes to the coordination, um, there is, and, and, that, and I will link that to the, to the competition too, you know, which was, which was mentioned. Um, I think, I, I think the, the, because we're a federation and with the way that the country is structured, I, th I think we're, this is, this is one of the main reasons is that we do not mind competition and we excel at it because we have Emirates competing against each other. Okay, so you will have, you know, you um, and you, you will you will have you know very similar projects. And some sometimes when people question why uh, being worked on in Abu Dhabi, in Dubai, and sometimes in Sharjah, you know, and elsewhere. So I mean, we're 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 okay with that. Um, and the thinking has always been that you know the. Uh, the more successful, for example, Dubai is, you know, the better it is for the, for the country. The more successful Abu Dhabi is, the more the better it is for the country, and and so on. Um, and of course, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm, re I'm revealing no no secret if, if, I, if I say that you know the two Emirates which have most input on the federal agenda will be Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Um, of course. Um, you know the prime minister, which is the, this is the executive branch branch of the, of the federal government. The prime minister is the ruler of Dubai, you know, um, and he, uh, any other other than uh, being entrusted with that because of the, the system, how the system works, you know, he demonstrated uh, what he did with Dubai when he was a crown prince too. So when you know, again, I go back to the timeline. Uh, 1971, 20, um, 2001, and then 2021. And the by the time you know Sheikh Mohammed Barajit came, you know, uh, into power, this is where you saw that you know um, uh, our our economy, you know, just growing uh, at uh, astounding speed. 
So he has he has he has that in place. But when I look at overall policy, of course, I mean, um, again, the, some, sometimes we will have that kind of you know tug of war, if you like, between between you know various various Emirates, and and we we recently saw it with the, with the way that COVID was was being handled. Um, uh, you know where where it started with a unified uh, you know policy or, or I won't call it policy but unified strategy you know how to deal with with COVID but as we went along there was that deviation and you had that Abu Dhabi school of thought and you had you know the Dubai school of thought where Abu Dhabi was more reserved and 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 Dubai was more you know trying to strike that balance between between um, you know protecting you know the people and the protecting the economy too at the same time so i mean there we do have that room of um, um you know each emirate doing things in its own way um but uh, but i mean this 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 will be the two the two emirates that contribute most you know to to policy making and so on thank you nasser so we are going to start with the, the list of questions I have now in my chat box, uh, and, and, and it's, it's a growing list, if I may add. So um, the first question uh, is about fintech from my colleague, Alessandro Adrino, who is a principal research fellow here at MEI. Uh, the, the question about fintech is about the fact that it's a spear tip of economic transition in the post-oil scenario, yet there is a labor shortage and top fintech talent is hard to come by. So in terms of talent attraction policies, the main issue is talent retention. So how are the Gulf states and the UAE in particular planning to maintain a stable talent pool? So at this question, I think we will you know, open it up to both speakers. Uh, Omar first, I guess. Over to you, Omar. Sure. So I think we mentioned both, uh, uh, and last time I mentioned some of the policies, some of the general attraction, uh, talent attraction policies. Uh, uh, such as you know the permanent residency naturalization and the you know living conditions allowing cohabitation of non microbes and so on. But I would say in addition to that, in terms of you know in terms of fintech, uh, I think you know I think you have to be have to you know you have to take a, a take a geopolitical angle too. Uh, uh, the UAE is somewhere that is positioning itself geopolitically as being uh, an independent actor. Uh, it is not just uh, uh, you know, on standby when the US calls and demands something that it will do it, uh, uh, or the UK or whatever. Uh, it has an excellent relationship with China. It has an excellent relationship with India. It has an excellent relationship with the US uh, and all the Europe with France. Uh, and I think it has a good relationship with Russia too. And I think that's important for people working in fintech because uh, you know whether you're talking about cryptocurrencies or, or any sort of advanced financial technologies. I think one of the significant fears you have now uh, in the wake of the Ukraine uh, conflict is that at some point you'll be, you know, your assets will be seized and, and you'll be frozen out of the international financial system. Uh, and here the UAE has, I think, quite intelligently uh, sent a very strong and clear signal to the world's financial community that the UAE is not beholden to any, uh, you know, economic or political bloc. Uh, and that it will maintain as wide a range of options uh, uh, to it and its residents and its citizens as is possible. And I think this is going to be uh, potentially decisive in, in, in attracting and retaining top talent, uh, not just uh, the people involved in working, but also, you know, people, the owners of the capital themselves, you know, if I'm a 
top Chinese investor, and if I'm a top Russian investor, if I'm a top Indian investor, then, you know, whereas in the past I may have been, may have thought that London or New York was a, uh, a safer a place for my assets as possible, I think now uh, I strongly consider Abu Dhabi and, and Dubai uh, uh, as alternatives, and maybe even I've already taken my decision to move my assets there. Uh, and add to that, also important, is that the, um, you know, the macroeconomic uh, policies of the UAE uh, in terms of maintaining macro stability, you know, uh, the currency has been stable for decades. The, uh, I think they learned a lot, the UAE, from the crisis that happened in 2008, 2009 in Spain, uh, and have taken you know, many measures, many measures in the financial sector to, you know, the stress tests and so on to uh, uh, shield the economy from uh, uh, macroeconomic instability. Uh, uh, and that's demonstrated in the figures. Uh, and again, that's uh, additional uh, uh, sources of attraction for talent. Uh, you know, if I'm, if, whereas previously, I, you know, if I work in London or New York, if I want to be a top, you know, financial sector employee, uh, uh, but I always have to be worried about the ups and downs of those sectors. I can now make a good case for wanting to move to Dubai because Dubai is that little bit more stable economically than these countries. Thanks, Omar. Over to you, Nasser. I, th I think what it, see, when it comes to, to fintech, uh, this is uh, one of the uh, announcements, you know, uh, made uh, in Dubai that, and I would, I would not limit it to fintech, but digital economy overall, you know, with everything that comes with it, whether it's, uh, you know, crypto, blockchain, uh, metaverse, so digital economy overall. Um, uh, it is it is one of the you know one of the goals of Dubai to be one of the leaders in that sector and for the sector to contribute. Um, I think you know my, I, I don't remember the exact figure, but you know to be a contributor to the Dubai economy and to create you know thousands of jobs and 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 we understand we understand with that overall you know. Uh, we under we understand that you know um, these these things. I mean, there is no question uh, that they are here to stay, but and they will they will be there. Whether it's you know the uh, cryptocurrencies or, or uh, you know, but it's being formed, and we understand that. And so we know we know that it's here to stay, but we do not know in what shape or form. So we have that flexibility, also. Uh, to uh, devise, you know, the acquired laws, revise them, um, because I mean, for when, when I look at, for example, when we, when the government of Dubai looked at crypto exchanges, you know, it did not go, it did not seek advice from uh, legal firms uh, throughout the world and so on. You know, it, it came to the likes of Binance and others because they understand, you know, how how they want to see the legislation. And you know what what problems they're facing in other places, and how you know what will uh, an ideal jurisdiction look like? You know, of course, I mean they, they'll put all of their wish list, and then you know it's up to the you know legislator here you know to to, uh, uh, to cherry pick you know what, what to include in the legislation. But I mean there is that flexibility, and I agree I agree with Dr. Omar that you know I, th I think the the COVID era has has been. Um, has been good to technology overall, you know, um, because um, if there was, you know, if there if there was, if we did not have these uh, 
you know, fintech tools, uh, health tech tools, and so on, you know, uh, the countries would not have been able to operate. Yet, you know, even when we had curfews, you know, people were still being able, you know, to, to transact, do many things electronically. Um, so, so I agree, you know, COVID was good to uh, fintech. Thank you, Nasser. Um, and I think we'll come back to you again, this time to reverse the, the sequence. Um, I'm going to condense two questions uh, from the audience in, into one. Well, they're, they're quite similar in that sense. And, and this one is for, for Nasser. It's about the non-oil sector in the UAE. And we've, we've talked a bit about the factors that, that Gulf states have adopted to attract more talent. But what are the sectors that the UAE is focusing going forward for businesses and innovation in the country? And also, are there nations that the UAE finds useful in comparing as case studies to enhance its own public service, for example? And I'm combining these questions from Aisha and Misha from, from the floor. So this one is for, for, for Nasser. I, th I think, um... I mean, as, as sectors, uh, it will be, you know, a changing thing, you know, because now we're talking about digital economy and so on, which was not there, you know, a few years ago. Uh, so that's, that's a big, and uh, that, that's a very big area because it will have, it will have big impact on every single sector, you know, you know, fin you know, the, the success of the fintech industry is forcing, for example, the banking sector to, uh, revisit its principles you know um and and i think the more advances we have in technology i, I think we will have uh, you know many sectors being reinvented if you like um so i think it's it's difficult it's difficult I mean, but if i if i if i say you know one sector of the future for us that we see is important is the digital economy with all that it contains okay but if i look at uh, sectors, of course, I mean, uh, energy is, is quite important for, for the UAE. It's, it's one of the um, you know, larger producers, but it's investing big time also in, um, you know, in, uh, in renewables, be it, uh, be it solar or wind farms all over the world, uh, or even in producing hydrogen in the future. And I, th I think both UAE and Saudi, and we touched upon that, you know, one, uh, you know, in, in the previous discussion, uh, are are betting, you know, are placing big bets on that. And and we will see competition not only from the GCC. I mean, uh, uh, if you follow the news, I think, I mean, a few days ago, again, India was was investing big time in Egypt, you know, for the production of uh, of hydrogen. So I think, I mean, I think as sectors, uh, I would say, you know, th those um, those that that come to mind right now. As countries, I won't say countries, uh, but we we always, you know, even in my um, uh, public sector days, we, we never look at countries, we, we look at experiences, okay? Um, so, uh, in, if you, you know, if I look at, you know, for example, digital government, if I want to improve government and so on, you know, most probably I will be looking at Estonia, you know, which many do not hear about, you know? Um, but I think, you know, um, 
we 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 seek we seek successes that we, we can we, you know we learn from and I, I think you know the government still does that it has an open mind wherever there's there's a success it will try to you know study it see how it can be not only implemented but be improved and 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 done here thank you nasser that's great uh, omar the next question is for you and i know nasser earlier mentioned that you know the competition is healthy uh, but you haven't given your two cents here. And, and the question also comes from the floor. And this more specifically on uh, the, the economic diversification between Saudi Arabia and the UAE in terms of their transformation. Of course, the kingdom is, is doing its uh, vision 2030. And of course, the UAE is also pushing forward. So the question is, is it fair to compare that the evolving model in the kingdom with that of the UAE? Over to you. So first of all, yeah, I just want to second, you know, what Nasser mentioned about competition being a good thing. I mean, this is this is a non-issue everywhere in the world. Uh, you know, if you just take a simple example of the EU, when the UK was part of it, you know, London was a financial capital, Paris was a financial capital, Frankfurt was a financial capital, and these these things enriched each other, and this competition benefited. France wants the German economy to be prosperous. Germany wants the French economy to be prosperous. These are good things. They create markets for each other. Um, most of this uh, uh, narrative is just driven by, to be frank, if I'm going to be blunt, by people who are outside the region, who have a stake in making it look like there's some massive conflict about to erupt in the region, and they just, you know, they make something out of nothing. There's competition, I mean, so as I mentioned, there's competition between the Emirates within the, within the UAE, there's competition between regions and Saudi, provinces in Saudi Arabia, it, there's competition between provinces in China, between states in the US, New York and San Francisco and, and Silicon Valley and so on. This is totally normal and this is generally, in, without, almost without exception, a good thing. Uh, so let's not fall into that, you know, that trap of, uh, of, 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 you know, imagining that there's some massive conflict about it erupts just because two countries, in general, you want to be next to a big prosperous economy, <laughs> whether the UAE, Saudi Arabia or anyone else. Uh, regarding the, the nature of the transitions. I think there are, you know, overall that, you know, they have in, in, in common that both countries are trying to limit their dependence on oil uh, and hydrocarbons in various ways. They also have identified uh, key sectors building on your last question in common, such as hydrogen, various forms of renewable energy, obviously tourism. Uh, uh, but there are some key differences uh, between the, the approaches taken by the UAE and, and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, the first is that Saudi Arabia has one sector, has an advantage in one sector, which nobody will ever uh, uh, um, be able to challenge, which is religious tourism, because it has Mecca and Medina, and <laughs> nobody's taking Mecca and Medina. That, those, those two will remain the two most holy sites for Muslims. And obviously, COVID is disrupting Hajj and, and Umrah, but you know, three or four years from now, you'll be seeing a lot more people doing Hajj and Umrah, and that's something which is unique, uh, and, and, it, and, and will always you know, whereas the UAE promotes itself as quite a secular society, Saudi Arabia will always want to maintain some degree of a, of a more Muslim identity in its, in its global uh, image because it has those two holy sites uh, uh, under its administration. Second, uh, the Saudi Arabian economy is, and, and the country and the population are significantly bigger than, than the UAE. And as a consequence, they can, their strategy can be much more about their internal market. Uh, UAE uh, have uh, uh, signed an FTA with Indian economy, uh, they, uh, uh, and they're looking to sign the FTA under the GCC umbrella with the UK. 
uh, and they're looking, I think, to do something similar with China. They probably will get that at some point soon. So the UAE's uh, economic strategy, although it has a big market, I mean, I sort of mentioned, you know, the, 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 the tremendous growth in the UAE economy, it's still by global standards, not the level that it wants to be at. And, and therefore, it, to attract the highest level of innovators and investors, you need to have access to big markets. Getting access to the Indian market is obviously a huge thing. Uh, and getting access to EU, UK, and so on will be additional. And that's something which the Saudi Arabia doesn't have to pay as much attention to because it's such a big market uh, in of itself. And then the final difference between the two is also, you know, in terms of where they are in, in the process. The UAE uh, has been, you know, doing this, I, I can think we can say, probably since the 80s uh, has been, you know, it's been a much more steady, uh, although maybe of late they've accelerated, put their foot down a little bit harder. The, the economic transition that UAE is undergoing is one that's been very, been undergoing in a long way, and that will continue to happen, you know, somewhat more incrementally over the, over the coming 50 years. Uh, whereas in Saudi Arabia, they're, <laughs> they're like on steroids there. You know, if, if, uh, I'm sure Nasser, like me, has visited Saudi Arabia in the last five years and, and seen Riyadh you know, in 2001 is just unrecognizable. In fact, Riyadh 2011 is unrecognizable from Riyadh 2021. Uh, so, uh, so the speed, and, and, and why is that important? Well, first of all, it means that uh, Saudi Arabia has to, uh, can benefit a lot more, first of all, from just copying what other countries do, including the UAE. Uh, but more importantly, it, it, the, the um, process of institutionalizing the changes, it's much more difficult for Saudi Arabia because it has to do it so quickly. It's, it wants to do things so quickly. And, and, and so it can be very disruptive and, 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 and dislocating. And, 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 and that doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but it just means that it, it, it needs a lot more effort and coordination. The UE can afford to do things in a much more uh, cautious and uh, methodical manner because it's been doing so for 20, 30 years now. Thank you, Omar. Excellent. Thank you. Um, the next question is for Nasser. And this really, you know, revolves around uh, the visas and residency permits that we talked about earlier. And the question is from Yoji, my, my colleague who's a visiting professor. Uh, is there a nationality-based quota system uh, in the UAE? That's part one. And part two is, you know, are effects of climate change factored into the development plans of the UAE, especially about the smart city concept? Um, okay, when it comes to, I mean, are there quotas? Uh, I believe there are, are, there are unannounced quotas, you know, uh, and that was, that was the practice in the past. In all honesty, I'm, I'm not really sure right now, but in the past, I mean, there was, a, you know, period, periodic revision of, you know, uh, how many, uh, and I won't name countries, but I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's mostly relevant to a few countries where there's, you know, um, a big population of that country here in the, in the UAE. Uh, so these, you know, I, I won't, it was not like a hard policy, but there were attempts to, you know, to um, to encourage uh, a more diversified, uh, diversified mix, you know, of, of nationalities. Uh, of course, that that in the, and I'm talking about something that was done in the past. I'm, I'm so I mean there is no like uh, a number that you know if it reaches that number there will be a hard no you know no more new uh, visas. No, that that still goes on, but there's always effort to uh, you know to um, have more diversity within 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 the country. Uh, 
Um, I, uh, when it comes to climate change, I think, um, again, it's one of those journeys that you announce, um, you say, okay, there is a goal, I want to get there, but you do not know really how we will get there, you know? Um, and these, this is, um, uh, I, I think this depends on um, the new innovations we see, you know, coming in the future. So, you know, I think, again, the, the, the UAE had announced um, uh, had announced a target of 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 being you know uh, uh, net zero carbon and so on. But again, uh, all of these targets, I think globally, we, we're seeing we're, we're seeing that okay, this can be announced, but will we really achieve it? That will greatly depend on the on the science that will enable us you know to to achieve that. Um, you know, in in the past. And, and this is why I mean, when we talk about energy, this is one of the key issues of why we're having a big problem today. You know, no investment was going in hydrocarbons. And, you know, all of a sudden there is not enough production, you know, for, for the world. Um, so, I mean, you know, <laughs> countries are realizing that, you know. Um, so, again, again, I, th I think that's a goal that is important to have as a, as a national agenda. But to keep in mind that it is it is to be to be revised as, as we go along. Thanks, Nasser. The next question is for Omar, and it's on reforms to the criminal justice system and penal code. So can some measured reforms to the justice system and penal code be made to enhance the secular quality and impartiality rule of law that gives companies and individuals confidence to lead lives or conduct? business. So that's for Omar. So I'm not a, a legal expert. Uh, um, I'm an economist, but I'll talk uh, to the greatest, you know, within, I'll talk about the things I, I can talk about to the greatest extent of my knowledge. Uh, so I would say that, first of all, you know, the UAE has had a very successful experiment with uh, its uh, sort of commercial law uh, in the last, you know, 20 years in terms of uh, creating rapid arbitration courts, uh, just make what I consider to be impartial decisions. If you look at any sort of index of um, economic freedom or uh, 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 then the section on uh, you know, the quality of judicial decisions, commercial disputes in the UE, uh, UE always comes out uh, uh, high, especially in debate. Uh, and you know they, they went about this again in a, in, a, in a very methodical way, attracting sort of top judges from, from the UK uh, and establishing a system in the right way. But in terms of the broader legal system, um, uh, I think there are, uh, uh, there's definitely you know, ways in which the existing system could be improved. Uh, um, but I don't think that will be a priority at present uh, for the simple reason uh, that in the rest of the world, uh, we're seeing you know, a disastrous uh, direction in, in, in when it comes to things like rule of law, uh, when it comes to things like, uh, uh, you know, the quality of judicial, the criminal, you know, legal systems, and so there isn't uh, uh, such a pressure on the UAE to improve itself on on this front. I think at the moment, um, when you see the way you know uh, events are unfolding quite negatively in countries such as the UK, such as uh, Hungary, such as the US, uh, I think what people uh, yearn for at an individual level is 
it's just uh, uh, some the, the sort of stability which a country like the UAE can afford them. Uh, uh, this is whether they're coming from you know an emerging economy or an advanced one. Uh, and so I think the UAE's reforms will tend to focus much more on other dimensions of, uh, of, of life in, in the UAE uh, and rather than on sort of criminal legal uh, reforms. But as I say, this is, this is me, an economist uh, speaking rather than a legal scholar. Thanks, Omar. The next question is by Asif Shuja, Senior Research Fellow here with MEI. And this question is for Nasser. Um, Towards making the financial activities of Sharia compliant, while at the same time retaining their profitability, what cooperation, if any, is there between the UAE and Southeast Asian Muslim countries, especially Malaysia? That's for you. Well, Dubai, again, I mean, um, Dubai had its aspirations when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, Islamic finance overall. Um, and there, there were, there were, you know, a number also of, of global successes, like, uh, you know, uh, of course, Malaysia was mentioned, but if, I mean, you cannot rule out London. Uh, and I remember, you know, maybe 15 years ago, I was asking which which bank was the best in, you know, Islamic banking, you know, when it comes to governments, corporate and so on, it was Deutsche Bank, you know, at that time. So I, I think, you know, as, as an opportunity, you know, it, it's it's a great opportunity, but but I think the decision here is to, um, to exploit that, you know, to its potential. Um, it's an evolving, um, it's an evolving industry but also not to lose on the conventional banking um, sector too, you know, because I mean, uh, these two, uh, let's say these two sectors are there, you know. Um, so I think, I, I, you know, um, even when it came to legislation, Dr. Omar mentioned, you know, the um, uh, arbitration and laws, I mean, I mean, and at that, at that time, the IFC courts took that into consideration, you know, um, so, I mean, what what level of cooperation? Of course, I mean, experience experiences are, are being shared. I mean, we're always, I know from my time in public sector, and and I know that even my colleagues later on, um, um, you know, we there is no reservation on you know sharing any experience, you know, and whenever you see, any, you know, we, we saw experiences, you know, in other places, even in Malaysia, we went there and we tried to learn from you know what they did well. You know, and, and to see if if we can do the same and even better. Uh, so I mean, cooperation is is open, but I, it's not uh, it's not systemized. Um, if that is the question, it's not systemized. There is not like you know one channel you go you go that way. I, th I think again, it comes, you know, between time and time. So it's not uh, something scheduled. Thank you, Nasser. And I think our final question, really, which will wrap up our discussion for today. And I think this question is addressed to both speakers. Uh, pretty relevant in terms of, you know, the global inflation and also in terms of, you know, we saw the, the ship departing from the port of Odessa on, on, loaded with grains. And, and this question, you know, relates to food security. And, and we had a, our share of problem here in, in Singapore uh, regard, regarding chickens, the export of chickens from, from, from Malaysia. But the question really to our both 
to our, both our speakers is on what are the steps taken to improve food security in the Gulf. And perhaps, Omar, you can tackle it from a more Gulf perspective. And Nasser, you go into the UAE strategy on, on that. So, Omar, all yours. So, at the start of the, at the, start of the COVID crisis, the, a GCC uh, committee, uh, level committee was uh, established. It was, a, it was an initiative by Kuwait to, to create a GCC strategy for dealing with food security. And it's something which all the GCC countries have been paying attention to actually prior to COVID. Uh, and, and what you're seeing, you know, uh, uh, since that committee, uh, that initiative started, six uh, uh, significant uh, uh, efforts by each of the six countries to improve their food security. Now, they have different circumstances. Uh, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia and Oman have much more capacity to uh, domestically produce uh, food than somewhere like Bahrain has. Uh, Bahrain is probably in the weakest position because we have such high population density and such land. And that's why Bahrain has been working actually on food security for quite a long time. We have relationships with Sudan, with Thailand, uh, uh, in order to uh, secure uh, food. And, uh, and we'll continue to develop those relationships. Um, I know the UAE has actually a minister of food security, reflecting you know, the importance of the portfolio uh, uh, in the UAE. Again, UAE has more land than Bahrain, still basically a desert you know so i mean it's 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 options in terms of uh, domestic food production at least according to current technologies are are very limited and obviously it has a very high population too uh so overall i would say each of the six countries have given the issue a very high priority um they uh, uh they've also the, the situation has been chronically important because we are deserts and because we have such low capacity to produce. You know, uh, Nasser mentioned the massive rates of population growth in UAE and all the GCC really in the last 50 years. And so that has always created a, a, an acute awareness among GCC policymakers on issues relating to food security, even before the Ukraine conflict or COVID or, or the existing or the prevailing disruptions to, uh, to supply lines. So I think the issue has always been important, it has received even more importance and the steps have been in terms of improving uh, first of all, generating high levels of domestic capacity to produce food, and at the same time, improving uh, strategic uh, relations with other countries which have a surplus of food, whether it's ones in uh, uh, East Africa, whether ones in, in, in South Asia, uh, uh, or, or further afield. Uh, and I think that's also an important part of the, you know, when you look at it on the geopolitical front, the even, even setting aside uh, uh, direct food concerns, uh, the 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 efforts by the GCC countries to keep their strategic and, and uh, options open geopolitically partially it reflects the food security issues. They don't want to uh, be on the wrong side of Russia. They don't want to be on the wrong side of China, uh, uh, and and wanting to maintain their food security is an important uh, part of that. Thanks, Omar. Over to you, Nasser. Well, when it comes to food security, I think uh, in the UAE context, uh, it was on the national agenda for, uh, I'd say, 15 years. Okay. And and um, so, so much investment went into, um, you know, into companies around, uh, around the globe when it comes to, you know, our food security. Um, and uh, even there was, you know, uh, I won't say an attempt because I mean it's, it's already uh, a few national champions were created, you know, to to uh, um, to tackle that um, as corporates and so on. 
and I think the 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 results surfaced when when uh, we had the lockdowns, you know, where where, where um, boundaries being closed between countries, and we found out, you know, that being also a logistics hub for the region, that most of the food is being stored here, you know, and distributed from here to the to the to the, to the region. So that um, I think. Uh, that was a testament of of the good job that that was done uh, there but but i think with with covid there were there was some emphasis that um, you know certain things even if, if it's more expensive they have to be grown locally you know because what if borders close uh, i think you know we we have a much better chance if, if we look at uh, um, gcc strategy you know from 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 if i influence policy making you know, this is one of the areas that that uh, I think the GCC can work on it better uh, than you know each country trying to do its own thing. Um, you know, um, uh, I mean, the, a country like, for, for example, a country like Qatar. Of course, we're not taking go, going into the political side, but a country like Qatar learned you know the hard way how to depend on on itself. You know, sourcing things from uh, from everywhere. So again. If I look, if I if I look at the GCC, I think a GCC-wide strategy would be better for everyone. You know, I'm I'm confident that if Bahrain wants to do it, UAE wants to do it, and others want. To, I mean, we will be successful. But if we have a GCC strategy to tackle that, we'll even do much better than you know what what each of us individually can achieve. Thanks, Nasser. And the bottom line is really a lot of uh, geopolitical coordination within the Gulf as well. Um, so thank you. This has been a lively and very insightful discussion. So I would like to sincerely thank both our speakers, His Excellency Nasser al-Sheikh and Dr. Omar al-Ubeili. Thank you for lending us your time and, and providing all your insights and brains. And also thank you to our audience for keeping the questions rolling in. Uh, and the discussion has been wonderful. So I thank all of you and I hope to see all of you again on another of our events. So thank you, Omar. Thank you, Nasir.